Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Erin Pinyon, and joining me today is Sato Mukhalian to discuss her book, Feast of Ashes, The Life and Art of David Ohanesian, through Redwood Press, the new trade imprint of Stanford University Press. Sato is an award-winning flutist living in New York City, although her work as an accomplished musician takes her all around the world. She has recorded over 30 solo and chamber music CDs, and in May of 2019, Noxos will will release her next CD, the works of Spanish composer Manuel de Falla. She serves as Artistic Director of Perspectives Ensemble, a collective she founded in 1993 to explore and contextualize works of composers and visual artists. Sato, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. Your book is fascinating, um, and uh, I was so excited to read it and learn from it. Um, It tells the story of your grandfather, um, David, or Tavit, uh, Ohanesian, a celebrated ceramicist who really led the material and artistic transmission of Anatolian Armenian ceramic arts to Jerusalem and beyond. Um, So just to begin, can you tell us a bit more about who Tavit was um, the many hats that he wore, um, and just anything about your grandfather. Yes, thank you. Um, so he had a very eventful life. I'll give you a brief overview of it. He was born in 1884 in an isolated, ethnically Armenian mountain village in western Anatolia, now western Turkey, to a family that um, historically had contained a number of other ceramic artists who had left Kutahia, where they trained and joined the profession. At the age of 17, he too moved to Kutahia to pursue an apprenticeship. And by 1907, he had mastered the art in all its forms and opened his own independent studio. In the following years, he participated in a revival of the art. And in 1916, early 1916, he was arrested and deported with his family to Aleppo in the massive deportations that were taking place at that time. In early 1917, he was deported again, this time from Aleppo to Meskene. And through a series of very fortunate circumstances, he survived with his family this this horrible three-year period, and at the end of 1918, ended up in Jerusalem, where he was invited to participate in a planned British restoration of the Dome of the Rock. He established a studio there in the old city and practiced ceramic making for nearly 30 years until 1948, when he and the family you know, fled the violence of the war. And then he ended up in Beirut, where he died in 1953. It's amazing. Um, And I'll say for our listeners that um, Sato's written a beautiful, full biography of her grandfather and has um, woven in all of these elements of of the trials that he faced. Um, So as you begin with your first encounter um, of your grandfather's art, um, and and it's, it's very beautifully written, and again, for our readers, I have to say that it is the book is filled with these vivid, colorful descriptions of both objects themselves and then full spatial um, areas um, that are decorated with and by um, 
Ohanesian's art. So if you'd like um, to share an excerpt of this material encounter um, of, of yourself as a child handling one of your grandfather's pieces. I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity. So just to, to set this up, I arrived in the United States as an infant refugee. My family was uh, fleeing the burgeoning nationalism in Egypt um, shortly after I was born. And my parents settled in a community where they thought they could raise a family, which unfortunately didn't have any other Armenians. So I was kind of cut off from my heritage. And um, perhaps in part as a result, um, the objects themselves took on that much greater meaning for me. So let me, let me read an excerpt. In our living room, a white painted brick fireplace faced the front door. On the mantel, high above the reach of a child's hands, stood a lustrous pottery vase, about 10 inches tall, covered with a vibrant cobalt blue glaze. Even in winter dusk, light bounded from its faintly dimpled curves. Large floral medallions in green and white filled the field with stylized red carnations laced between them. Feathery leaves traced graceful arcs around the flowers. Turquoise and white diamond figures circled the neck of the vase, strung together with tiny dot knots of red glaze that piled up in relief. We never ever put flowers in the vase, and from that I learned that sometimes objects exist just to be admired. On the rare occasions my mother took it down, and the rarer occasions still when I was allowed to hold it, I was always surprised by its heft. The glassy surface stayed cool to the touch. I ran my hand along the inside and traced the smooth imprints of fingers, which had left furrows in the clay as the vase was shaped on the potter's wheel. Your grandfather made that, my mother said. Thank you. Um, it's such a powerful encounter. It's almost as if um, it's this moment, this sacred moment with this prized object. Um, and it doesn't only capture this language of ornament that you're that um, was developed and executed by your grandfather's atelier, but also is the culmination of many displacements and many ruptures in your family's history. Um, can you tell us more about how that vase ended up in your family's New Jersey home? Sure, sure. And um, I mean, uh, what you're saying right now is making me think of the fact that, you know, the vase, of course, is an object that has its own aesthetic value, but it's also a container. And in my case, it was a container for a lot of memories. It was a, a container for the transmission of my family's story. Um, my mother fled Palestine in 1947 for Damascus at first, and she carried just a few objects with her. Like, like most Armenians in Palestine at that time, they thought that you know they would take shelter during the war and then return. Um, she never returned to Jerusalem, unfortunately. It was heartbreaking for her. But she did carry a few pieces of her father's art, which were extremely precious to her. And um, they traveled with her from Damascus to Cairo, Alexandria, and then finally the United States. And the vase ended up in this place of honor in our home. It was the first thing that you saw really when you walked in the front door. Wow, that's so powerful. I imagine, I mean, just the position on the mantle, the lighting, and and imagining kind of the the height difference between a young child yes. and seeing this thing and looking up to it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
so so you you begin and you actually end with these these material encounters but the life of your grandfather um is is organized geographically mm-hmm. and um by Ohanesian's movement from place to place mm-hmm. um and we actually see a, a particularly important move from um Eskishahir to Constantinople as as being very influential um can you talk more about um these early movements and and how it influenced or ignited his artistry? Yeah, sure. So, um, and I will uh, say that there's a very romantic story woven into all of these moves, the move from Eskashir to Constantinople, but I will leave that for those who, who choose to read the book. Um, but in terms of his art, uh, yes, yeah, so the family left the mountain village when Tavit was about six years old, uh, moved to Eskashir where he was enrolled in a French Catholic school and became fluent in French, which played a role in his career. His father died when he was 14, and he withdrew from school and um, went to work for an egg merchant, where he picked up another whole set of skills, and then moved to Constantinople at the age of 17. So he had gone from a very rural environment to a more urban environment, where he was exposed to uh, particularly European influences. In Eskashihir, you had the building of the train station, so you had uh, many Europeans, um, mostly Germans and Austrians, but lots of, lots of new influences, ideas, and products that would make an impression on a young man. In Constantinople, though, he was exposed to the ceramic art from the peak of the imperial era, you know, the mid-16th century, and seeing the Rustem Pasha Mosque in particular left a huge impression on him. It was something that uh, never strayed far from his mind for the entire rest of his life, something that he talked about constantly, his encounter with those tiles, the white, the the depth of the colors, the arrangement of the patterns uh, made a tremendous impression on him, and then through a series of, of other circumstances, he decided that this was going to be the thing that he would pursue in his life, which required his moving to Kutahya to enter his apprenticeship. Um, and um, and as, we, as many of our listeners know, um, Kutahya was home uh, for a very long time to... Um, not just ceramic arts, but also Armenians involved in ceramic arts. Um, can you, and, and we'll talk more about this brilliance of the white background um, and how that was the thread um, through a lot of your grandfather's art. Um, but can you tell us just very briefly about Kutahia as a city and as a, as a center for ceramic production? Yes, sure. So I, as most of our listeners will know, um, Iznik, which was about... 100 miles to the north was the principal imperial ceramic making center which you know supplied the needs of the sultans and you know noble people and um the isnic art was projected you know throughout the ottoman empire you see examples of it in the european um, ottoman territories in the arab lands um this whole region of Western Anatolia is tectonically extremely complex, and it's water and mineral rich. So 
you have the production of ceramics that grew out of the materials that were readily available there, particularly a kind of clay called kaolin, which was used to produce this kind of luminous white background that we see you know, in the mid-16th century Iznik tiles. So Kutakia was also, um, also had uh, deposits of the same clays and minerals, and it was used um, to handle sort of the overflow of the imperial orders to Iznik, but at the same time, um, they developed their own strands of artistic output. Um, we know less about who was making tiles in Iznik, like during the, the peak of it, the city's production. In Kutakia, on the other hand, we actually know that there were a lot of Armenians involved in the art, I mean, as well as Greeks and, and Turks. Um, in the beginning of the 18th century, when uh, Iznik's art had kind of cooled and the production had declined or diminished, uh, Kutakia sort of stepped forward and began a, a period of, of great production, fulfilling imperial orders, but also producing um, a number of different styles and uh, votive objects, for example, the ceramic eggs decorated with cherubim, um, a sort of naive figural style that's kind of immediately recognized, recognizable as sort of playful figures with very colorful costumes, um, rose water flasks, a, a whole variety of different kinds of objects that are sort of intimately connected with Kutakia production in the 18th century. Uh, of course, the coffee cups, um, which were distributed very, very widely. And in the 19th century, the city's production declined along with the, um, you know, huge economic problems uh, experienced in the center. Um, by the mid-19th century, there, was, there were few people continuing to produce work, but it was uh, in 1855, um, the massive earthquake in Bursa that actually reignited the Kutahia tradition. Um, Ottoman statesmen, including Osman Hamdi Bey, like turned to Kutahia to create renovation tiles and promoted Kutahia in other venues. So they they sort of set the set the um, energy going of a revival that continued into the early twentieth century, um, which is when your grandfather arrived exactly and um, kind of set with this um, these massive visual stimuli from the capital. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about um, the style that he develops in Kutahia? And, um, and as we know, he was, he was well known and commissioned in his time. Could you <coughs> um, begin to tell us more about some of those uh, smaller and bigger projects? Yes, sure. So in that whole late 19th century period, when, you know, there was a sort of struggle for what was the Ottoman national identity, um, you saw the seeds of a new architectural style emerging, which which um, flowered in the early 20th century. And it was a style that we call, today we call first national architectural style. And in that time it was called Ottoman revivalism. And basically um, a group of architects took the most recognizable elements from the great architectural masterpieces of the Ottoman and Seljuk eras and combined them into this new kind of retrospective 
style, which um, featured a lot of ceramics. So these are ceramics that followed the pattern of you know, imperial production in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the government actually commissioned lots of buildings, um, regional government houses, the Grand Post Office in Istanbul, uh, boat landings um, there, and all of these were decorated with Kutakya tiles. In fact, uh, Sultan Mehmed Rashad V uh, commissioned the architect Ahmed Kemalatin, Mimar Kemalatin, who's of course very well known and associated with this architectural movement, um, to build his shrine. Um, he, Kemalatin received the commission in 1910, and the construction stretched out over several years, 1913-14. The Kutahia ceramicists were making tiles for the interior, which was completely tiled. It's quite magnificent, and you can visit it in Istanbul today. So there are these large commissions in Istanbul, in Kutahia, in Cairo, in Konya, you know, in the major uh, centers. And at the same time, Kemalatin was leading... Um, an initiative to restore a lot of the, you know, classical era buildings. So Ohanesian and his partners in Kutahia, Mehmet Emin and the Minasian brothers, um, had the opportunity to study tiled buildings from the 13th through the 18th centuries to see how the tiles were made, how the tiles were affixed to the monuments, what the glazes were like, how the bodies were composed, and in the course of doing this, they added to their own visual vocabulary. Incredible. Um, and, and your grandfather had a particularly um, fortuitous meeting and a strong relationship with um, Sir Mark Sykes. Is that right? Yes, it is. Although he wasn't quite Sir at the time <laughs> they yet. met. That would come a couple of years later. So in May of 1911, Mark Sykes, whom we all know <laughs> through the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, Mark Sykes, who was a British diplomat, aristocrat, member of parliament, his family manor in Yorkshire called Sledmere House uh, burned nearly to the ground. And after a lifetime of traveling in Anatolia and Mesopotamia, he decided on rebuilding that he was going to add a completely tiled room as a sort of homage to his affection for the East. And during a diplomatic trip, in 1911, he made a detour to Kutahia, where he met David Ohanesian and gave him this uh, very large commission, um, which was executed remotely through uh, the exchange of architectural drawings and letters between Ohanesian and Sykes and his architect in Yorkshire. After Ohanesian was deported and ended up in Aleppo, he was there at the, at the time the British conquered that city. And very shortly after that, Mark Sykes arrived to set up a provisional British administration. Sykes traveled to Aleppo by way of Jerusalem. And during his week in Jerusalem, he and Ronald Storrs, the new military governor, surveyed the holy sites and the old city. And they were both... Um, very aware that the condition of the tiling on the Dome of the Rock was extremely precarious and in need of attention. So they had this in mind, and they and other British officers and uh, foreign office people uh, started looking around to see, like, 
what could they do? And it was also a political challenge because by the end of the First World War, um, the British held dominion over a very large proportion of the world's Muslim population. So there they were, the new sort of colonial administrators in Jerusalem proposing to renovate one of the most sacred monuments in Islam. So it was something they gave a lot of thought to. Um, at any rate, when Sykes reached Aleppo, one of his tasks for the British Foreign Office was to interview the Armenian survivors who were there and <clears throat> report on the possibilities for their repatriation, their condition, etc. And during those days, he re-encountered Ohanesian. So it was an incredible stroke of fate for my grandfather. I don't know what would have become of the family had, had this not happened. But at any rate, Sykes connected Ohanesian with Ronald Storrs and the family traveled to Jerusalem. Amazing. And, and here, what we can really see is Ohanesian is serving as a physical agent of a visual transmission through his deportation. Um, but, but what actually couldn't be achieved um, in Jerusalem or elsewhere outside of Kutahia um, was this, this, this material element, this, this bright white background um, that plagued your grandfather, <laughs> um, as you say. But um, can you tell us more about the, um, what could be achieved and what couldn't? In this move. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, the Isnik and Kutahia uh, visual traditions, you know, grew out of the materials that were available locally. <coughs> At that time, um, the tiling of the Dome of the Rock represented a sort of uh, pastiche of different um, styles of tile making um, over the years. I mean, there there was never an indigenous glazed polychrome ceramic tradition in Jerusalem because um, the region lacked the minerals that were indigenous to Western Anatolia or uh, to Tabriz. So what would happen is the the officials would bring people, uh, and several times they came from Kutahia, carrying materials with them. So after some period of experimentation, Ohanesian recognized that you know to, to make replacement tiles, he would need to go back to Kutahia, which he did later in 1919 under the auspices of the British military administration. And he recruited the remaining Armenian tile artists who were there to return to Jerusalem with him and he brought a substantial amount of materials. So he he did provide uh, restoration tiles in this early period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see we see at least in the artistry of of Ohanesian how both Rustem Pasha Mosque in in the capital mm-hmm. um, and then the Dome of the Rock. They are these two monumental pieces of architecture that are fashioned in an Ottoman imperial idiom 
and they deeply affect his life. Um, they kind of, would you say that they bookend his career or they ignite something? Well, I've, yeah, I think to say that they ignite something is it's a great way of putting it. Um, of course, Rustam Pasha and, you know, the sort of uh, Iznik style of tile making was a constant source of inspiration and something, you know, that he aspired to throughout his entire life, a standard that he aspired to. Um, the Tabrizi tiles on the Dome of the Rock were also an inspiration, and um, ultimately his, his uh, ceramic practice kind of bifurcated a little bit in Jerusalem. Um, part of it, the tiles that he made for you know installations, uh, architectural installations, often used clay that he imported from Turkey, um, the kaolin that he imported from Turkey, along with some other minerals. But the problem of how to make ceramics in Jerusalem also remained. And what he ended up doing was he did use the local clay, which had a very high proportion of iron, which you know gave it a sort of reddish tint even through the, the slip coating. But what he did was he kind of changed his color palette and um, he adopted some of the, um, the decorative uh, practices of the Tabrizi tiles, which had the dark background. So... You see on a lot of the pottery, I mean, there is there is white, which often ends up breeding as pink. And then there's also pottery that has a black background made in Jerusalem or a deep blue background or deep green background so that there's very little white exposed. So I don't know if it's that he was emulating the, the you know original Tabrizi tiles on the Dome of the Rock or if that just proved to be a solution to the problem of what do you do with iron-infused clay and a lack of materials? Well, you create a new aesthetic, and so that's that's what he did. Mm -hmm. And and in the book, you you mention a geological survey conducted mm -hmm. by your grandfather, and and I hope everyone through Sato's description is understanding the intense chemical processes yeah. involved in in not only preparing and kind of bringing clay, but also firing and glazing yeah. and the amount of experimentation that um, Ohanesian went through mm -hmm. in order to get something um, something to accommodate with this new space and this new material. Yes, it's true. And um, I should also point out that um, two of the ceramicists that he brought with him from Kutahia uh, split off in 1922, uh, Balian and Karakashian, to, to found their own studio on Nablus Road outside the old city. So they founded the second Armenian ceramics studio in Jerusalem. And so there was a, a healthy element of competition there. But everybody basically was trying to figure out, like, how do we work with the materials that we have? And it was a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that, I mean, we see that today, that Ohanesian extended an Ottoman imperial visual idiom that had long formed his craft in Anatolia. And like for all of our listeners who might have traveled to Jerusalem or Istanbul, we see the legacy of his ceramic tradition. And it's very still, um, it's so present in the visual fabric of these cities. Um, and perhaps what strikes me the most is that it really is everywhere. It really is ubiquitous. Yeah. And um, and beyond what we have visually, mm -hmm. um, this this book is also about your journey in, yes. in navigating what remains as a family record. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so can you tell us a bit about not only how you came to this topic or how you decided to write the book, but how was your research process? Well, of course, you know, growing up the way I did and kind of coming to a point where I wanted to know more about, you know, who I was and who my people were, you know, it just involved uh, reading everything I could about my grandfather. And, um, you know, there was quite a lot written about him. Um, But I began by my early 20s to notice that there was sort of a gap in the history. Um, You know, there were... uh, European and Turkish art historians who had written quite a bit about Kutahya, and you know he's mentioned in some of those books rather briefly or disparagingly. And then, of course, there were um, art historians, Israeli and British, who wrote about the production of ceramics under the British mandate. But there was this gap in between. Like everyone acknowledged that the art moved from Kutahya to Jerusalem, but they didn't really explain how no. that happened, you know. And also, um, I, I, I noticed that art historians, maybe in a sense, looked at the art from the top down, mm-hmm. you know, without maybe considering as much as they might have uh, the struggle of materials mm-hmm. and the very specific locality of these arts, how the aesthetics of the arts, especially ceramics, were tied to the materials that were mm-hmm. available. I mean, it's not that they didn't, but this, it, as I began to read and research, I saw that you know this was a, a big part of my grandfather's story. Like, how do you bridge that gap? Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of read as much as I could, and, and then I read and contextually. Sato's, Sato is now an expert um, on everything Kutahia and has well. Her bibliography is incredible and very, very helpful. I mean, that's very kind of you <laughs> to say. But I did, um, I mean, I do a lot of research in my in my life as a musician, so that sort of carried over to my curiosity about my grandfather. And by 2013, you know, I was, I was doing research in archives. So I had already, at that point, gone and visited as many of the uh, extant tile installations as I could find. And then... I was encouraged by Dikran Kumjan and others to to sort of, you know, pursue the project of of writing a more comprehensive biography. But of course, at the same time, I am the granddaughter. And so it was a two-pronged thing. First, I wanted to know everything I could find about Ohanesian's art and the transfer of this art from Kutahia to Jerusalem. And then I also wanted to know, you know, about the Armenian story, like what was actually the situation of Armenians in Kutahya. Um, how did they survive, those who did survive? And what were the conditions in Jerusalem in the in the years around the First World War? So um, I had a lot of resources at my disposal and I have 14 first cousins and a brother and they had in their attics and closets a wealth of material that had been completely untouched letters of David Ohanesian, glazed formulas, photographs that he had taken. Um, So between that and the documents that I found in the Ottoman archives, in the British National Archives, in Mark Sykes' archives, Charles Ashby's archives at Cambridge University, here in New York, in Washington, D.C., I was able to kind of piece together a timeline and then begin to fill it out. So the bulk of the book is the biography organized by place and then the book ending chapters mm-hmm. are the stories of my search 
and what I found. Mm-hmm. And I and I have to emphasize again, Sato's reading of of these spaces created by Ohanesian's art are incredibly incredibly powerful, and and it's honestly. Um, beautiful reading to to see through your eyes you encountering these this art in situ as it as it was installed well thank you so much for those very kind words and i have to give a lot of credit to my mother femi ohanesian mugalian and my aunt serapi ohanesian who left a lot of records behind which are thoroughly integrated into my story and i wanted to honor their contributions. I mean, first of all, the fact that they saved so much information, but also to honor their language and the language of my ancestors, which had been passed down through oral storytelling to my mother's generation. My mother transcribed them and made copies for me and you know all of my cousins and my brothers. So without that work that was done one generation ago, I, I would never have been able to do this. And now you've you've, um, wonderfully shared the story of your grandfather's life with all of us. Um, And you've you've given us an authoritative narrative on his life. Um, And I have to ask, what's next for (laughs) for this material? Um, You've you've done so much collective work and corrective work, really. Um, What do you envision doing Well, I'd like to write a little bit more about it, about some of the things that didn't make it into the book. And I'd like to draw as much attention as I can to the living art of Armenian Jerusalem ceramics, which thrives today, which has, there are many studios. I'll just mention the Balians and the Karakashians and the Sandrunis, the Antreasians and the Lepedjans. And I think there are a few more who are, you know, maintaining an art form, a living art form in Jerusalem that's also projecting all over the world through the internet. You can now, you know, line your pool with uh, Armenian Jerusalem ceramics. You can make a kitchen backsplash. You can buy, you know, votive objects for your own home. It's a wealth of things carried into the 21st century. It's a beautiful living art, and I would encourage everyone to take a look. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Sato, for your time and for sharing such wonderful insight into the life and work of your grandfather, David Ohanesian. Um, you've done an amazing work in recontextualizing his contribution to global ceramic arts um, and the movement of displaced objects, peoples, um, and, and the crafts. Um, your book restores agency that and um, a historical narrative that was previously glossed over. Um, and and it was a pleasure to read. So thank you so much. And I encourage our readers uh, to seek out Sato's book, Feast of Ashes, um, which, as I, I'm overwhelmed with saying, um, but it's beautiful images of everything we discussed today. So Sato, thank you so much. Thank you very, very much for this opportunity.